Well, hey, Faithbridge, it's such an honor to be with you. And before we jump into what the Lord has for us today, I just want to say again, thank you for your generosity, not only for what it's accomplishing in Houston, but I think about it all the time that we up here in D.C. exist because of your generosity and others. And so thank you for your leaning in to see the Church of Jesus Christ grow, not just in Texas, but even up here in D.C. So we love you. It's good to be with you. It's good to connect with the great state of Texas. And um, I just love you all and am excited about bringing to you a word from the Lord today. So let's pray together and then jump into it. And if you got a copy of scriptures, we're going to jump around a couple places. Psalm 142, Psalm 57, 1 Samuel 22. And so uh, just have your Bible ready to go. Uh, Maybe get a couple Bibles out, hand them out to the fam. But uh, we'll move around together, but I think it'll make sense as we go. So Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for every person uh, joining us today. And I pray, God, that as a result of these few minutes, what Ken mentioned would be true of us, that we would have hearts that are filled with more hope than ever before. And God, I can't generate that, but you can. So we're asking you now, would you fill our hearts and our homes with hope as a result of these few minutes? And I just invite all of you, if you're willing, take a minute and pray for us and ask him, say, Lord, use this moment. Well, Father, we love you and we trust you. Use this time. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know it's a little different in D.C. and Texas, but, you know, up here, we're in our third month of quarantine. And I know quarantine's loosening there, but still, we're in our third month of trying to figure out what corona life looks like. And I got to say, as I'm surveying the church and seeing now what a quarter of the year of quarantine has done to us, I just got to be honest, we're, we're starting to look a little weird. I mean, I'm seeing the introverts are suddenly starting to miss people. Uh, The extroverts are reading books. Some of our type A people are uh, sleeping till noon. Some of our peppy people are getting sad. Some of our Zen people are suddenly real irritable. Dogs and cats living together. It's just getting strange. And I'm watching this time make us a little weird. But I want to explore the question. My pastor, Louis Giglio, mentioned the other day to us, he said, hey, We all know we're going to make it through this time. That's not the question we're asking anymore. The question now is, what will this time make us? As we begin to exit this time of quarantine, what will be true of us when we leave this time? And I want to contemplate that. I want all of us to leave this moment like Jesus left the wilderness, that he came out of that wilderness moment filled with the Holy Spirit and power. I don't want us to leave it like Tom Hanks and Castaway, just all kind of bearded and twitchy and talking to volleyballs. Like, how are we going to exit this time? I want us to not be broken by it, but be better because of it. You know, there's an opportunity for crisis to forge character. Heat can break and bend steel or it can forge diamonds. And I want this time of crisis to forge our character. I want us to be better as a result of the season, not bitter because of it. So the question is, what will this time make me? What will be the result of it? If no pain is no gain, let's get as much gain as we can from this pain. And when we walk out, what will be true of us? I don't want it to be, well, we were twitchier, weird, irritable. No, I want us to be the best version of ourselves as a result of this season. I had a friend say to me once, when you break a pattern, you open the door of possibility. 
And I don't know what your quarantine pattern has been, but I just want to open the door of possibility today that even now in this moment, God might have more he wants to do in you and in me as a result of this time, if we have ears to hear it and eyes to see it. What can God do with this season to forge something good in me? And I want to do this and talk about it by looking at a hero. How does a hero handle hardship? And I want to look at the life of David, arguably the greatest king ever. And we're going to watch David navigate a crisis in a way that forges his character. And as we look at that, it's meant to encourage us. I want to see how does a hero handle hardship? How does a king respond to the cave? And if you're not familiar with King David's story, uh, David was anointed by God as a teenager, maybe 13 years old. God, through the prophet Samuel, told him, you're going to be king. And from that moment on, things started to look great for our hero. His little harp playing business blew up. He suddenly got a recurring gig in the castle. No more work in the harp club circuit. He had a recurring gig with the king. And then, you know, he showed up on the battle lines on a cheese run one day when Goliath was attacking his people. David stepped out and killed Goliath. And when he did that, he became insta-famous. All of a sudden, everyone in the nation knew him. He picked up a wife. He picked up an awesome best friend. He got a sweet job with the military, kept climbing up through the ranks so that in just a few years, he's now the leader of the military and married to royalty. And so in David's life, everything's up and to the right. Everything's looking amazing. All of a sudden, he is married to royalty and he is leader of the military. He is one step away from becoming king. And you go, this is it. This is the anointing of God. And then something happens. It's fascinating. Uh, The commentator Robert Alter said, in this season of David's life, he is repeatedly the object of the verb to love. Everybody loves David, except for one person, King Saul, who was an unstable person and jealous of David. So one day while David is playing the harp for the king, the king throws a spear at him and attempts to kill him. And David's like, okay, he's a little stressed. Maybe he's emotionally unstable. But then when the king tries to pin him to the wall again, David realizes, no, there's something deeper here. I have to run. And the king's jealousy hardens into state policy. He commands the troops that David used to lead to kill David. Now imagine this. Through no fault of your own, suddenly David realizes, I have to run. And so he runs home. And his wife tells him, you're in trouble. She helps him pack. He runs away. And then when the king's troops arrive, she sells out David to her dad. And so in a moment, in a day, David loses not only his job, but his home and his wife. She marries another man. He runs to his mentor, but has to flee. That's the last time he'll ever see him. He loses his mentor. He runs to his best friend. He'll see him one more time. And then his best friend will die in battle and David won't be there to protect him. He loses his best friend. In desperation, he runs to some priests to take care of him, but realizes I'm not safe there. And he leaves and Saul slaughters all the priests. And so David, in the moment of stress, runs to the Philistines. And when he gets there, they're like, hey, didn't you kill Goliath like our hero? And David has to act like a crazy person to get out of there alive. And so all in a moment, suddenly David, man, do you want to be anointed by God? Do you want God's anointing on your life? Yes, I do. It's like, okay, well, then here you go. Let's lose your home. Let's lose your job. Let's lose your friends and your mentor, and your family. And suddenly, David, in desperation, by the time we get to our text in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, it says, David departed from there, and he escaped to the cave of Ajalon. So through no fault of his own, suddenly he goes from castle to cave, 
from adulation to alone, from the highest to the lows. And we get to ask a question in this moment. How does David handle it? How does a hero handle hardship? How does the king navigate a cave? And what's fascinating is we're not going to see this moment break David. It's actually going to build David because this is what God does. When God sends his people into the wilderness, it's never to destroy them, church. It's always to redirect them, that God uses the wilderness to strengthen the will of his people. We're going to see in David this moment now in the cave of Ajalon is his defining moment, even more than his fight with Goliath. We're going to watch the cave forge a king. And what's great about this is, unlike a lot of different parts of the scripture, this part is so much like NASCAR. And you say, what does that mean? I don't know if you've ever been to a NASCAR race. I've been to one. And I remember when I showed up, I was a bit underwhelmed. I was sitting there and I'm like, this is it? We basically just watch cars go in circles for hours? Like, how is this enjoyable? Why is this a thing? And I remember watching that and seeing these people sitting around me in the crowd, like laughing and high-fiving each other and elbowing each other. And, and finally, at one moment, I tapped one of them like, how are you enjoying this? Like, what about this is satisfying to you? And I remember when I said that to this guy, he leaned over and he showed me this receiver that he had. And what he was doing is he had earphones. And when he saw a car pass another, something like that, he would punch in numbers and it would patch him into the signal of the conversation between the driver and his pit crew. So he wasn't just watching the race. He had an inside track to the processing of the driver with his director. And he would see a guy cut off and kind of patch in and hear him go, he cut me off, I'm gonna kill that guy, stay focused, Bobby. And he was listening in and it gave him this incredible experience of what he was seeing in front of him. And that's what we get here. That there are two Psalms in the book of Psalms that are called of David when he was in the cave. We get to patch in and hear how David processes with God the lowest moment of his life. We get to read the king's journal. This is a 30 for 30 on the Goliath killer. And as we look at this, we get to see how does the king handle a cave? How does the hardship actually produce hope? And I got to tell you, in this moment, it's not destructive for David. It becomes instructive for us. But it's important to note, it doesn't start great. How does he handle this moment? You see in Psalm 142, he says in verse one, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Look at the verbs. How does he first handle the cave? He says, I cry, I plead, I complain, I tell my trouble. And some of you hear that and you're like, it sounds like our kids. Or others of you are like, no, that kind of sounds like us, crying, pleading, complaining. That sounds like me in this season. David doesn't sound like a hero. And that's the point, right? That we aren't that far from the hero. He's not far from us, and you're not far from being a hero. But this is how it starts. How do we navigate the cave? Number one is we get honest. We get honest. And David pours out his complaint to the Lord. And you see the nature of his complaint in verse three. He says, when my spirit faints within me, you know my way. He said, I'm so stressed, I'm about to pass out. He says, in the path where I walk, they've hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. When he's talking to the Lord, he says, look to the right and see. Your right was your hand of strength in battle. That's where you put your best warriors. When I look to the right, it's for the people to take care of me. And David looks at his situation and says, nobody's helping me. Nobody's taking care of me. 
And then he says, and you know what? No one even cares about my soul. I'm in a situation, God, where not only am I stressed, I don't think anyone cares for me and I don't think anybody's looking out for me. And you just see David get really raw and really honest. And let me tell you, there's a place for this in the spiritual life. There's a place for lament. And I know some of us, maybe you grew up in a spiritual tradition where you think that's inappropriate. You're just supposed to pray very appropriate prayers like, Lord, thank you for this food. May it nourish my body, even though you don't know what you're asking him to do to that food and wouldn't know if he accomplished it anyway. Or some of us grew up maybe in traditions where everything in church is supposed to be clappy and smiley and happy. But let me tell you something. This is where the king starts in the cave. This is where hope is birthed out of hardship. It starts by being honest, by just saying, hey, I'm not happy with this. I'm not okay here. God inspired these scriptures and the people of God did not cut this out of the text. We are supposed to pray like this. It's actually unhealthy if you don't. Pixar taught us this. What happened in the movie Inside Out? There's a place for sadness at the control panel of your life. But if you try to shove sadness down, what happens? She makes a mess of your life and joy gets lost with her. And all that's left controlling you is fear and anger and disgust. We're not meant to try to put sadness down. And some of us, if we're honest, in the stress of these days, we've tried to bury our anxiety under a mountain of Netflix or distraction. And it's not made us better. It's made us really toxic and bitter. And that's not how we're supposed to live. What we do is we begin by saying, I got to be honest with the Lord. I got to pour out my complaint to him. And some of you hear that and you're like, well, Ben, nobody wants to hear complaining. You want me to just complain to everyone who will listen? Well, no, that the verbs vary. I cry, pour out my complaint, but notice the direction is consistent. I do it to the Lord, to the Lord, before him, before him. And you see it in verse five. He says, I cry to you. Oh Lord, I say you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry for I'm brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, they're too strong for me. Bring me out of prison that I may give thanks to your name. Notice he's crying out, but look at the direction. I'm crying out to the Lord. Why is honesty a good thing? It's because honesty is the seedbed of intimacy. Honesty is the soil in which intimacy grows. And all of us know this. You can't have a real relationship with someone who won't be real. You know this. If you've seen someone, you're like, hey, how you doing, man? And every time you see them, they're always like, fantastic. Couldn't be better. Praise the Lord. And you're like, I don't know, man. I heard your business is struggling. I heard the diagnosis you got was pretty bad. Like, how are you doing? And if they're always like, fantastic. And you're like, man, I, I can't have a real relationship with someone who won't be real. I know for me and my relationship with God, it was when early in my 20s, I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to play games with God. I don't want to sing words I don't mean. And so I remember at one moment saying, you know what? I'm having a bit of a crisis of faith here. And I went out into my yard and said, you know what, God? I'm not happy with this and this and this that happened in my life. There's some things I wanted that I feel like you took from me. There's things that I was looking forward to that you've snatched away. There are dreams that now won't happen. God, I'm not happy about this in my life. I'm not happy about this. I'm not happy about this about me. And I'm not happy with you. I am angry at you, God. Amen. And I got to tell you something. I think God loved that. I think he was like, I can work with that because now you're being real with me. 
and honesty is the soil which intimacy grows. If you will risk being honest with me, now we're in a relationship. And David begins to speak to the Lord. And let me tell you something, this is how you move on in a crisis because you can't move somewhere else till you acknowledge where you are. If you told me, Ben, I wanna come to your church, how do I get there? My next question to you would be, where are you coming from? If you were trying to get here, you gotta acknowledge where you are. And for some of us, we're in a situation here where God wants you to acknowledge, I am scared. I am anxious, I am angry, I'm impatient. And rather than just say, well, it's this person's fault or that person's fault or the government's fault, let me just stop and go, no, God, something's going on with me. And let me pour out the complaint, not snapping at my spouse, not coming after my kids, but let me take it and aim it at you, God, and say, Lord, this is where I'm at. Because here's the beautiful thing. When you process with God, you allow God into the process. Let me say that again, because that's important. When you process with God, you allow God into the process. And when the Almighty enters our scenario, things change. And you see it in this Psalm when David pours out his honesty before the Lord. After he's fired every salvo, there's a moment where he's sitting there in the place in front of the Lord where now the Lord gets to speak back and the Lord begins to deal with him. Because you see, for many of us, it's kind of popular right now that authenticity is the goal. I just gotta be authentic, I just gotta be me, I just gotta be real, and uh, that's where people end. I just gotta get comfortable with me having a bad attitude. And you're like, no, authenticity is good. Authenticity is not the goal. We have to start there, but then we move on. David pours out his complaint, but you're not gonna see him sit here for long. You're not gonna look up six months later and see David curled in a ball and just kind of roll over like, Saul was so mean to me and God left me. You're gonna see a David who's moved forward. And yet it starts with honesty, but as he pours out his complaint, right at the end of Psalm 142, he says, the righteous will surround me. You will deal bountifully with me. As he risks processing with the Lord, he allows the Lord into the process. And suddenly he realizes, you know what? Maybe this cave isn't the end of my story. Maybe this isn't a cave. Maybe it's a cocoon. Maybe you're wanting to make me into something new. Maybe there's a future beyond this. And it doesn't look like much at the end of Psalm 142, but some little cracks are coming and a ray of hope is shining through into David's life. Hey, maybe there is a life when this is all over. And what will it look like? I want righteousness surrounding me. I actually believe maybe bounty will surround me. Something good is gonna come from this. And then you really see him get that in Psalm 57 as it, we get the other Psalm from the cave. He says it in verse one, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge until the storm of destruction passes by. See, remember it said the cave he was in was called the cave of Ajalam. Ajalam means refuge. And yet David, after he's gotten honest with the Lord, he starts to get perspective. That's your second point. How does a king handle a cave? How does a hero handle hardship? One is you get honest, but then you get perspective. He says, wait a minute. Maybe this cave is my refuge. You are my refuge. And then I love it. He doesn't present himself as the Goliath slayer and puff up his chest like a hero. He picks the metaphor of a baby bird. Hey, I am helpless to some of these forces. And rather than getting angry about it, I'm gonna actually picture myself as something helpless, a baby bird. But you have some wings I can take shelter under. 
until this storm passes by. And again, hope is starting to crack in. Maybe there'll be a day when this storm passes. Maybe this destruction will pass by. Maybe there's something good happening here. Maybe, God, you have something you want to do in me with this time. See, this is fascinating. God loves to give us insight in isolation. There's the potential for clarity in the cave. I don't know if you've noticed this. God sends his people into the wilderness all the time in the Bible. And it's not to destroy them, but to instruct them. And you saw the first time when in Egypt, when Moses was leading his people out, what happened? There came a moment where Moses out in the wilderness went up onto the mountain to sit with God and to learn from him. But down at the floor, his brother Aaron was throwing a crazy rager party with the rest of the Israelites. Remember when Moses came down, he looked at his brother and said, what's going on here? And remember his brother was like, man, I don't know, like uh, this pot was sitting over there and suddenly this golden cow jumped out. And so we just, you know, kind of started worshiping this cow. And Moses was like, no, that idol didn't pop out of that cauldron. That idol popped out of you. That a little bit of stress, a little bit of deprivation, and you got some insight into yourself. That idol didn't come out of that pot, Aaron. It came out of you. And for some of us, this time of quarantine is giving us the opportunity to see what idols am I clinging to? I mean, I'm going to Netflix for my comfort. And maybe beforehand, we we're like, what? I'm just a normal person. I work 40, 50 hours a week. I go home, watch some TV, go to sleep, fine. And God's like, all right, you want to go to Netflix with your stress rather than me? Let me give you Netflix till it's coming out of your nose. And now you're realizing, you know what? I wasn't just watching a movie. I was seeking shelter there so I wouldn't have to deal with some of the rage or fear inside of me. Others of us, we have some addictions we've tried to dismiss or pass off, but yet here in this quarantine, as the noise outside of us has slowed down, we've realized how noisy we are within, that the cave has become a place of insight, and we're seeing some things we don't like. And yet the opportunity is, God is not just letting us be honest about those things. He wants to give us perspective in the midst of that. There is a God who wants to meet you in this process. There's things he wants to teach you out in the wilderness if you have ears to hear it. And here David sees, you know what? I am in a moment of stress, but I'm not alone. He says, I'm crying out to God most high. And that name, God most high, that's not a, it's not an uncommon name for God, but it's not the most common name. But actually it was used by Abraham. When Abraham was out in the wilderness, he went into a valley of the kings. There were nine kings going to war and then Abraham, who's just a wandering guy. And yet after the war, the kings defeated, it's Abraham who comes out triumphant and the remaining kings pay homage to him. And here while David is in his cave, he starts to call that same name that Abraham did, God Most High. That he realizes, wait, when Abraham was walking with God, the nine kings did not control Abraham's story. God is the most high. He did. And David starts to get perspective. Wait a minute. Maybe Saul doesn't determine my destiny. God most high does. Maybe this era isn't going to define me. Maybe my king is going to define me. And you see David begin to get confidence because he gets perspective. There's, there's a great book, The Pilgrim's Progress, one of my favorites. It's the famous allegory, incidentally, that uh, John Bunyan wrote when he was spent 12 years in quarantine, he wrote one of the most famous books ever written in the English language, The Pilgrim's Progress. So I don't know what you've been doing in quarantine or me. He wrote an enduring book throughout generations. But The Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory about a guy named Christian journeying on the narrow road that leads to life from the city of destruction to the eternal city. It's an allegory of the Christian life. And while he's doing that, there comes a moment where the Christian steps off the path and when he steps off the path, he trespasses. He wanders to a place he shouldn't have gone. 
And while he's doing that, a giant named Despair finds him, grabs him, beats him up, and locks him up in the castle of doubt. And here's where you have to say the sentence to think about it and apply it to our own life. When the Christian veers from God's path, he gets beaten up by despair and locked up in doubt. And when that happens, you see, while Christian's there, this is where the story gets weird because Bunyan's telling the story. This giant beats up Christian, locks him in this cage of doubt, and then the giant goes home. And he starts processing his, processing his day with his wife. And his wife's like, how did your day go? And he was like, ah, it's good. I found this Christian, beat him up, locked him up downstairs. And she's like, oh, that's great. Uh, tomorrow, show him the skulls of everyone who died here and then beat him. He's like, all right. So he does that and comes back. And she's like, how was your day? And he's like, well, you know, I beat up this other guy named Hope. And, uh, you know, it went pretty good. And she was like, all right, next time show him uh, that the chains will never break and then beat him. He's like, all right, babe. And so he does it. And as you're reading this, you're like, wait, what is this like, this giant processing with his wife and her giving him like real-time coaching on how to beat people? What is going on here? And then the wife's name is Diffidence, which I didn't know what Diffidence meant. I had to look it up. And Diffidence means shyness or reticence, a shyness to come before the presence of the Lord. And so a reticence to process with God is keeping the Christian beaten up by despair and locked up in doubt. But when hope enters that cell with the Christian, hope begins to speak to him and says, hey, maybe there's a life outside of this prison. Maybe these chains aren't unbreakable. Let's seek the Lord. Let's bring our pain to him. And when the Christian listens to the voice of hope and begins to pray, suddenly he goes, wait a second. I got a key named promise that I got from the king. And the promises of my king, I believe, can unlock these chains of despair and set us free from this doubt. And he pulls this key out, unlocks the chains, and they leave. It's the most anticlimactic ending to the chapter. You're like, that was incredibly easy. Where was that earlier? But you see what happens to the Christian when we stay beaten up by despair and locked up in doubt, we stay in a place we're not meant to. But when we get honest and then hope begins to speak to us to get perspective, suddenly we remember, I have promises. And David remembers, no, I have a promise. I'm going to be king. The cave's not the end of me. Maybe it's the beginning. And you and I don't have a promise that we'll be king, but we do have a promise that God works all things for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God is doing good in my life through everything, even quarantine. And as we begin to believe that, we start to move from honesty to perspective. Maybe God is doing something. Maybe God is even harnessing this season to wring something good out of my life. I want to get all I can. I want to get honesty and get perspective. This cave isn't the end of me. It's a beginning. God is using this not to destroy me, but it's a cocoon to make me into a king. And David David begins to get perspective. God is using this in my life. And you see him turn the corner in verse three. He will send from heaven and save me. He'll put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul's in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongue are sharp swords, but be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed low, but they dug a pit and they fell into it. I love that he's saying, God, God will send for me. God will save me. God will put to shame those who are coming against me. He's like, God is on the move because God is for me. And what I love about that is once he gets that perspective, you see the verb shift from he will, he will, he will, to I will, I will, I will. 
He says, my soul is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praise to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. That's the third thing. That when we get honest, we get perspective. When we get honest, we get hope. And then we get moving. We see what are the things I can control. Let me be great at those things. And David said, if God is processing with me here in the cave, then I believe that he will, he will, he will do good for me. And so I will, I will, I will do the good that he set before me to do. I'm not going to sit still. I'm not going to wallow in despair. I'm not going to sit here and feel sad for myself. I'm going to remember that God is most high over everything. He rides over every storm. And so I'm going to praise God in the middle of my pain. I'm not going to wait till I get out of the cave. I love that. He says, no, I'm going to sing while I'm still in the cave. I'm going to sing while it's dark outside. I'm going to sing before the sun gets up. No more sleep until noon. I'm going to sing before the dawn. Actually, I'm going to wake up the dawn. Hey, dawn, I'm waiting on you. I got the harp out. Let's go. Somebody pull the lyre out. Let's have a worship service now. Let's not wait till we get out of this. I'm starting right now. I will sing in this place. And then he says, and I will praise you among the peoples. It's fascinating that uh, in uh, 1 Samuel 22, the section we're talking about where he went to the cave, remember he said he was all by himself, but then later he says, uh, and everyone who was in distress and in debt and bitter in soul, they gathered to him about 400 men. And so it didn't start getting greater. David's like, I'm all by myself. And suddenly every disenfranchised and bitter person joins him in the cave. And he's like, really, God, this really wasn't this. I'm like surrounded by malcontents. And yet as he begins to get perspective, he looks around and he says, hey, these are dangerous dudes. He says in this psalm, I'm surrounded by lions. But, you know, being called a lion in the Bible can be a good thing or it can be a bad thing. You know, it, you can be an evil lion, but later David's soldiers are called lion-faced men. And that's who you want to go to war with. You don't want to ride out into battle with gerbil-faced men. You want lion-faced men. But here, now that David's gotten honest and gotten perspective, he starts to get moving. and says, wait a minute, I'm in this cave surrounded by lions, but you know what? That's not a bad thing. Maybe I can sing his praise in front of these people. Hey, maybe I get these boys sobered up and focused. We got something here. Maybe I'm going to use this time to disciple some people. Maybe I'm going to use this time to mentor and encourage some people. Maybe there's some people in my life I haven't invested in. I've been too wrapped up in a cocoon of self-absorption, and I've missed the opportunity I have to invest in the people in front of me, and I'm going to take that. And David looks around and says, I'm going to invest in these guys. What's fascinating is we know later in history, the men in this cave will become David's mighty men. Not only will they become his mighty men and his warriors, they will become the cabinet for his kingdom. So don't miss that. Here in the cave, God is forging the cabinet of the kingdom. Here in the wilderness, God is forging warriors. And David's able to see it and actuate it. Why? Because he got honest, he got perspective, then he got moving. What is the good in front of me I can do? And some of us, God has pulled you back from work, and that's been scary. But in the midst of that, he's shown you your kids. And you've realized, I've neglected going after their hearts Maybe quarantine is helping me get some important things right. Some of you are going, maybe I have an addiction to success, to notice, to some sort of drug or the screen. And God is showing me that addiction and how it's robbing me from my creativity and how to serve others. And this is a time to jettison that from my life so I can see and bless people. Others of us, our lives have been all about us. And it's time to turn it to be about somebody else. And David looks up in this moment and says, there's some positive things I can do. I can praise God. I can train others. And then what I love about this is David not only does that, David fulfills prophecy. 
you see that what he's praying here in the cave, and notice that what he's praying in the cave becomes our prayer even now. We're talking about it generations later. But Paul will say in Romans 15 that God fulfilled this prophecy of David, that I will praise you among the nations. You go, how is that a prophecy? Well, you find out later that David, when he does become king, he's celebrating God, but then God tells him, I'm going to put one of your sons on the throne forever. That David, my plan was to use the cave to make you a king so that from you could come the king of kings who would reign forever and all the nations will come to God through him. And you see that what Paul is calling a prophecy, when David praying this, I will see God praised among the nations. God's like, that's right, because from you is coming the king of kings and the nations will come to serve him. And so Paul says that in Romans. He says, God fulfilled this prophecy of David. David didn't know he was prophesying about Jesus, that you and I are gonna know the king of kings because of this cave moment. We're gonna see Jesus here in this difficult moment because what will happen? Jesus does the same thing. He entered the Garden of Gethsemane, and he got honest. He said, God, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it pass. But then he gets perspective, but not my will, but yours be done. And then he gets moving, and he marched into that mob that arrested him, beat him, crucified him, and he was buried in the grave. But three days later, he arose, beat death, exited that cave in triumph, and that cave became a cocoon leading to victory. And that's the potential for you and for me. Now we Gentiles know the King of Kings because Jesus went into that cave and emerged. And God has put us in a cave because there's possibility there if you'll see it. So get honest with him, get perspective, then let's get moving. Let's look at these days and say, we are a better church as a result of this cave. I'm a better person because of this pain. I'm in a better place because of what I let God do in me as a result of these times. It's interesting, David at one point flees to Moab, who were Israel's enemies, and a prophet tells him, don't stay in the stronghold. Go to the forest of Hereth. Some of us have been taking refuge in strongholds that need to be broken. We need to go into the forest with God. Hareth means to carve or to etch. And for some of us, God wants to use this cave to carve into his character, if you'll let him. Michelangelo, when he did his greatest sculpture, grabbed a stone that had been discarded by others, but he saw in it potential. And so he took a broken stone and he took his tools and began to etch into the stone Michelangelo's David, the greatest statue that exists. And God wants to do that with you. The master wants to lay his hands on you and me, as broken as we are, to etch into us character, to etch into us something good, to take broken things like us and make us beautiful if we'll let him. He did it with King David. King Jesus purchased our redemption by entering that cave of death and coming out triumphant. Let's let this cave forge hope in us. God is using it for his purposes if we have eyes to see it and ears to hear it. Lord, I just thank you that you love us and you love us enough to let us suffer, not to destroy us, but to forge us into something better. So God, I pray we'd be honest about the pain. We don't have to pretend it's comfortable, but may we get perspective and then get moving. God, may we be better as a result of these days, and we look forward to what you're gonna do in us and through us. Give us a vision now of what we can do that's positive, glorifying to you, and good for others in this season. May we forge and strengthen the unity of our church, not be frayed by the stress of this day. Make us better people, God, for your glory and the good of all those around us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Love you guys.